Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hi, Sefi. Thanks for leading the charge on this week's episode. Who did you interview? This week, I spoke with our old friend Jacob Kornblut, the national politics reporter at Jewish Insider. And together, he and I ran through all of the possible choices that Joe Biden might make uh, as soon as next week uh, to announce as his vice presidential nominee to get a sense of what each uh, one of those talented and impressive women would uh, mean for the issues of importance to the Jewish community. Oh, and you'll be talking about all women. Quite a historic moment. Can't wait. And listeners, stay tuned after that for our weekly feature, Shabbat Table Talk, where Sefi and I both share the table with Jerry Rosenberg, AJC's Asia Pacific Institute's Japan representative. He joins us from Tokyo to share an important remembrance. Let's hit the show. There's plenty of general reporting out there about each of the possible women who Joe Biden might pick to be his vice president. We're here now to understand the Jewish angle for each of these impressive women, to learn what American Jews should know about each of these candidates that might make them more supportive or concerned. So we're going to go one by one and get the Jewish angle from our guest, Jacob Kornblue, the national politics reporter for Jewish Insider. Jacob, thank you for joining us. Good to be back. Let's start with Kamala Harris, a former candidate for the Democratic nomination, a popular senator from California, the state with the second largest Jewish population in the country. What's the Jewish angle on Senator Harris? First of all, she's married to a Zionist. That already gives her... A Jewish Zionist. Yes. So that gives her an upper hand in this Jewish uh, deep stakes. I think that Kamala Harris gives a lot. She adds a lot to the ticket, number one, just because she was a popular candidate and people saw her at the start as a rising star and somebody who can really take this to the very end. Unfortunately for herself, she didn't win the primaries. She did take on Joe Biden pretty early, which gave her that rise in the polls in the early of 2020. I would say that Biden, when Biden comes to see who is his preferred choice for Veep, Kamala Harris has a big name recognition. She is obviously a rising star. And her background, her label as being a black woman from California, but also her ties in the Senate and in the Jewish community. So the pros are out there. The cons are that I'm not sure Biden is really looking for someone on the ticket who would potentially overshadow him. Not because Harris doesn't understand that if she's on the ticket, she's number two, and she's there to serve the presidential nominee and possibly the president, but because Kamala Harris ran on the same slot, because she's ambitious, you know, she can overshadow him in media appearances and potentially as vice president of uh, being a little more independent and vocal than, let's say, Dick Cheney and Pence on camera. 
beyond the, you know, the happy coincidence of the Jewish husband. Is there anything in particular that Jews should know about Senator Harris's policy stances? What has she done on issues of anti-Semitism? What has she done uh, on supporting Israel? Other issues of concern to the Jewish community? I mean, she has close ties with APEC. Obviously, uh, she's spoken at several um, APEC conferences, but she also appeals to the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Uh, she's not seen as a controversial figure amongst progressives, per se, as someone who is too pro-Israel for them. Mm-hmm. She would reflect the same policies that Biden, Obama, and anybody else running in the Democratic Party other than Bernie and Warren, she would you know, align herself with the same policy views. So I don't think she's outstanding and she's not too long in the Senate to look back at her record, but I think she has a strong pro-Israel record and she has aligned herself with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Next, let's talk about political neophyte Susan Rice. Susan Rice served as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in President Obama's first term and as national security advisor in his second, going even further back in time, actually, I think I think she was the youngest ever assistant secretary of state. Uh, she was, you know, 33 or something like that when President Clinton in 1998 made her assistant secretary of state for Africa. What do Jews need to know about Susan Rice? Well, Susan Rice, first of all, is uh, there's mixed emotions about Susan Rice. Obviously, she has good ties with prominent members of the Jewish community, and she has a record serving as national security advisor and ambassador to the UN under Obama. Democrats supported mostly Obama's policy when it comes to Israel, other than the last uh, UN Security Council 2334 resolution. And just remind our listeners about 2334, why that was controversial. Well, that was the only time when the Obama administration abstained on a vote that condemned Israel on settlements uh, um, that, you know, really put a dent on Obama's um, record when it comes to a majority of American Jews, not talking about Republican Jews or those uh, in Israel who saw Obama as being uh, more soft when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. But Susan Rice obviously had uh, this overlap from being a national security advisor and ambassador to the UN. Obviously, she was a controversial figure on this front. Uh, She was criticized by Dennis Ross, by others, for her combative style when it came to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. On the other hand, she has very strong ties with somebody like Abe Foxman, who is very vocal in his pro-Israel stance. Um, she also has the benefit of being very close to Obama. And in this election cycle, because Joe Biden is not this exciting, energetic candidate, you want someone close to the Obamas who would at least give voters the reassurance that this is one team unified working to defeat Trump. I also think she's a safe pick as vice president because she doesn't necessarily have the ambitions to be president. She would be very supportive of Joe Biden politically, but also when it comes to policy, she won't overshadow him. But she would give ammunition to the Republican side. They attempt to paint Joe Biden as J Street Joe, 
uh, it's not sticking because Joe Biden has obviously decades long record uh, in support of Israel. So Kamala Harris has ties on the westernmost side of the U.S. in California. Susan Rice has some ties in Maine. Now we're going to land right in the Midwest and talk about Tammy Duckworth, the senator from Illinois, the junior senator from Illinois, a decorated army veteran. And as a result of the rocket propelled grenade that blew up her helicopter, the first woman with a disability to be elected first to Congress uh, and then to the U.S. Senate. What should our listeners know about Tammy Duckworth? She would be a strong addition to the ticket because she would take it to Trump. And I think that's what Biden is really looking for in the coming months is because this is a referendum on Trump, you want someone who would be a good attack dog. And she has that. She also has a decent record when it comes to Israel and supported by J Street. So she's supported, you know, uh, on both sides of the aisle within the Democratic Party, and she would give the base that excitement of, you know, taking it to Trump in his face. Uh, she would also, as I mentioned regarding Susan Rice, she would also not overshadow a possible President Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, certainly coming from a, a state like Illinois with such a large Jewish population, uh, strong views opposing anti-Semitism and, and things like that. Are, is she on the record on taking any kind of steps on, on those kinds of issues? Yeah, I mean, she has a pretty good record serving in the past few years in the Senate. She's taken the middle ground on most of these issues. In addition to Kamala Harris, who we already spoke about, there's another vanquished primary foe who Joe Biden is reportedly still considering, and that's Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren was maybe among the most successful Democratic primary candidates at getting her story out there. It's extremely well known. She grew up poor in Oklahoma. She eventually rose to become a professor at Harvard Law School. She created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau under President Obama, was elected senator from Massachusetts, and is currently serving her second term. What should people know that they don't already know about Elizabeth Warren? I think Elizabeth Warren is already a known figure, especially given that she was seen early on as the front runner for the Democratic nomination. And the fact that she's being considered as a serious contender for vice president says it all that Warren brings to the ticket this excitement as if you didn't get it in your first attempt. She's not number one. At least you'll get her as number two. But this is where Joe Biden would take a big risk in picking her the same way he would picking Kamala Harris's, which he might excite the base and also put in the front, someone who can take it to Trump, obviously reviving that Pocahontas uh, label, but also uh, really being strong on policy and exciting the progressive base. The problem with that is that people will talk about Elizabeth Warren and not so much about Joe Biden. Donald Trump would love to have this race be about Warren and not about himself. And if Joe Biden wins this presidency, she'll be a very active vice president, unlike Pence or Dick Cheney. I mean, Dick Cheney was active uh, behind closed doors, but she'll be very active in pursuing her policy views in a Biden administration. And that's a risk. Mm -hmm. um, progressive certainly does not automatically mean anti-Israel, but increasingly people are concerned about 
correlations between elected officials who identify as progressive and and a certain you know lack of warmth toward Israel or or even in some instances an antipathy toward Israel. Is that a concern with Elizabeth Warren? I mean, she was obviously the first candidate to announce that she was skipping the APEC conference, even though it was obvious that most candidates would not uh, attend the conference this year because it uh, overlapped with uh, Super Tuesday. And she did not sign AOC's letter on annexation conditioning aid. The progressive women who are very vocal in their stance, um, criticizing Israel, are more aligned with Bernie Sanders than with Elizabeth Warren. So even though she is this progressive superstar, even though the progressive movement within the party would be very excited with uh, a Warren as a running mate, uh, she doesn't draw the same antagonism as Bernie Sanders and the same, you know, question about her record. Obviously, she's strongly supportive of Israel, strongly supportive of a two-state solution against conditioning aid. So I think that tells it all that mm-hmm. even that Joe Biden is not considering someone like Bernie Sanders as VP. He's considering Warren because she has those progressive credentials, but she's still takes the middle Mm -hmm. ground when it comes to these issues that we Mm -hmm, care mm -hmm. about. Um, I want to talk about one more uh, name that's been thrown around quite a bit, specifically in in, in recent weeks. She's definitely the most obscure uh, of the ones who we've spoken about, and that is Representative Karen Bass. She served in the California State Assembly, rising to be the speaker of that body. She's a five-term member of Congress from California. She's the current chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, How did her name enter into the mix? What do people need to know about her? And where does she stand on these issues that are so important to us? I think you saw recently on TV where uh, Biden came to the Capitol and he was accompanied by her. He felt very comfortable in her company, and it looked like he respected her very much. Obviously, being chair of the Congressional Black Caucus is a big plus. Also, she has a strong character, which adds a lot to the ticket. She co-sponsored with Ellen Lowenthal last year the House resolution on the two-state solution, which garnered almost bipartisan support because it added a few amendments that expressed support for the MOU and against annexation. Uh, recently, she made a comment saying that the House letter on annexation is not sufficient because it hasn't garnered bipartisan support, meaning to say if you want to caution an Israeli government on a move that you think would undermine the national interest of the U.S.-Israel relationship and America's security, it should be bipartisan. So she holds dearly those views of maintaining bipartisan support of Israel She has a record of being pro-Israel and of expressing views that are the mainstream of the Democratic Party. On the other hand, she's also a firebrand of the progressive movement. So this would give a lot to Biden. But again, you know, she also has those uh, stories coming up recently, which, you know, the other side and some within the party could paint her as a radical, as too controversial. You're talking about her kind of historical support for the Castro regime in Cuba, or, or, or at least affinity for, for Cuba. Yeah, that could damage her in Florida, but it also would put the focus more on her than on Trump. And that's something the Biden campaign would want to avoid. 
Mm-hmm. We've gone through five possibilities now. Those are not the only five names that have been mentioned. They are five of the names that are mentioned the most. Um, they are, I think, towards the top of the betting markets for people who focus on that as a potential predictor of what's going to happen in politics. Um, are there any names that we have not spoken about? I mean, we have to believe the leaks to the media, but as somebody who is somewhat cynical at times, um, <laughs> I view sometimes these lists as a distraction, which is focus on these five candidates, on these three candidates as a short list. So they get scrutinized, but also distracts you from who we are really looking at. I mean, I doubt that Biden will give up on his pledge to pick a woman, especially a black woman, given the current political climate. But I wouldn't uh, rule that out. It could still be that he has someone in his pocket that he will roll out in the last minute as a surprise. And we're certainly going to hear, I mean, the the Democratic National Convention starts a week from Monday, I believe, on August 17th. So we're we're certainly going to hear who the pick is in this coming week, presumably. Yes? Yeah, I would say barring any, you know, unexpected developments in the coming days, it should be announced sometime mid end of next Mm -hmm. week. Just to cover our bases so that our listeners can't come back to us and say, you know, I can't believe you spoke about five people and and didn't mention the person he ultimately picked. I'll just throw a few names out there that that we're also seeing bandied about. People like Val Demings, Congresswoman from Florida, former police chief of the city of Orlando, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, and uh, who knows, we could end up needing to uh, to do a follow up to uh, to introduce our our listeners. <laughs> any governor of a battleground state, anybody who could add to uh, winning or could help Joe Biden govern in the White House would be a potential pick. This is a this is a always a tough question to get in an interview, but let me just put you on the spot for a moment and ask, who do you think it's going to be? You're putting me in a very tough spot because I guess I will just uh, block whoever criticizes me on Twitter. <laughs> always a good policy. If I had to put my bets on, I would say it's either Susan Rice or Kamala Harris. All right. Uh, well, you heard it here first, Jacob. Before I let you go, let me just ask. One more question that might be um, a little bit out there. Over the past, you know, three and a half years, there's been a lot of chatter that Trump, uh, President Trump, is is not loyal to Mike Pence. That Trump Pence 2020 is not at all guaranteed. That Mike Pence got him to the White House, but President Trump didn't necessarily feel that he needed him to stay in the White House. And certainly, the president is uh, trailing in opinion polls and uh, might feel tempted to uh, to shake something up. Do you think there needs to be a conversation now about the Republican veep stakes? Absolutely. I think you should never rule anything out with Trump. He is an incumbent, but an embattled incumbent. If he is, and that's a big if, if he sees that he still wants to serve as a second term, he doesn't want to lose to Joe Biden, and he can benefit from picking someone like Nikki Haley as veep, he won't even blink. But I still think that uh, Pence has been loyal to him. Pence doesn't look as ambitious as some other candidates uh, would look for that spot. And he's not a Chris Christie who would dump Trump in the waning weeks of the campaign. So he's still safe, I think. But with Trump, 
never rule anything out. So uh, maybe there are two races to watch here, races as it were. Um, let me just remind all our listeners uh, after this intensely political conversation that AJC is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that neither endorses nor opposes candidates for elective office. And to you, Jacob, let me say thank you for sharing your insights with us today. Always a pleasure to be on AJC, Pat. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Jerry Rosenberg, AJC Asia Pacific Institute's Japan representative. Jerry, when you're chatting with your family at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hello, my name is Sefi, and good morning from Tokyo. This week represents the 120th year anniversary of Chiyune Sugihara's birth and the 80th anniversary of his signing of transit visas. And so we will be thinking of Sugihara this week in Tokyo. This is also an appropriate time because in Japan, this period is called Obon, where Japanese go back to their traditional hometowns and pay respect to their ancestors. So paying respect to Sugihara at this time is very appropriate in a Japanese context. Sugihara was the vice consul of the Japanese consulate in Kaunas, Lithuania in 1939. In 1940, Germany and Russia took over portions. They split Poland and took over portions of it. This created a situation that the Jews who were living in Poland were trying to get out in any way that they could. Poland borders Lithuania, and so many of the Jews went to Lithuania and were trying to get some type of visa that would allow them to get out of Lithuania and go to some other country where they could escape. Sugihara, even though the Japanese government had told him not to, he had decided that he would write transit visas that would allow the Polish Jews to transit from Lithuania to Japan. He wrote about 6,000 transit visas. But it is amazing that today, 40,000 descendants of these people are alive due to the actions of so many people, but particularly Chiyune Sugihara. I hope uh, that people have learned a little bit more about Chiyune Sugihara and the travel and the escape from Poland of these Jews to Japan. Thank you. What will you be talking about at your Shabbat table, Manya? Well, Jerry, Sefi, I have never been good at coloring inside the lines, and so I never really felt validated as an artist. I think about this when I'm coloring with my kids. This week, blissfully unaware as her crayon drifted across the page, my three-year-old daughter stopped to get a pink marker and accidentally dropped it, leaving a speck on the edge of the portrait. When her little eyes welled up, I exclaimed, no tears, it's part of the art. That is a mantra in our household, meaning unintended brushstrokes, mistakes, they're all part of the artistic process. I've fooled myself into thinking that dawdling and surfing Facebook is part of the writing process too, but that's another story. The point is my daughter was validated again and proceeded to finish her portrait of a princess and her castle, and there might have been a whale or something in there too. Two recent announcements have me thinking about validating kids. 
Those listeners who have children or grandchildren may be familiar with PJ Library, which provides free Jewish children's books to kids around the world. In our home, we have an extensive library that is the source of more than half of my Jewish knowledge. This year, PJ Library will be expanding to Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. The partnership between the foundation and local Jewish agencies in each country will enable local families to sign up to receive the book for children aged 2 to 8. The project aims to fill a dearth of Jewish children's literature published in German. I was really quite moved by this. There is really nothing more validating for my children's Judaism than the fact that books about Este the Mensch or the Schmutzi family compete for their attention with Dr. Seuss and Amelia Bedelia. The other recent announcement is the introduction of multicultural crayons by the Crayola Company. Now, forget the box of 64 with the sharpener in the back that I highly prized as a kid. This box contains 40 skin tones that take the guesswork out of racial distinctions. Now, Sefi, I'm not sure how you drew people when you were little, but when I did, I always used peach to color the skin. I did not know until recently that peach had been called flesh color until the mid-20th century. My black and Indian friends tell me they would use, oh, burnt sienna or raw umber to color their self-portraits. To have an actual crayon hue dedicated to their ethnicity and culture, it's validating. There's been all this chatter about how we talk to our kids about race and racism, but in my mind, it's these small gestures that make just as big, if not a bigger difference for our tiny creatures with infinite minds. Jewish children in Germany should grow up feeling a sense of pride and belonging in Germany, regardless of its history or perhaps because of its history. They must reclaim their German homeland and teach others and make sure a Holocaust never happens again. It's why AJC is there. Likewise, children of all races and ethnicity should feel a sense of pride and belonging no matter where they live. Being able to see themselves in a box of crayons and realize they are part of the art, that's validating. Reading and coloring. For the first time, I can honestly admit that is what we will be doing at our Shabbat table. Sefi? I'm pretty sure I used to use Robin's Egg Blue to uh, color in my people, but I was not the best colorer. I bet your daughter is uh, is far more advanced at her age than than I was at mine, or or frankly than than I am today. As we record, City Hall in Tel Aviv is lit up in the red, white, and green of the Lebanese flag. On one level, this is not remarkable. Lebanon, as we all know, experienced a massive and tragic chemical explosion on Tuesday, killing more than 100 people, injuring thousands, and reportedly leaving hundreds of thousands homeless. Lebanon is Israel's neighbor directly to the north, and it's fairly common for the Tel Aviv municipality to light up City Hall to show solidarity with countries, especially nearby countries that have recently experienced hardships. Of course, there is actually nothing at all common about Tel Aviv basically flying the Lebanese flag, considering that Israel and Lebanon are technically still in a state of conflict after the 2006 military engagement known in Israel as the Second Lebanon War. And Tel Aviv's mayor, Ron Khuldai, a former brigadier general in the Israeli Air Force, certainly doesn't have a reputation for being soft on Israel's enemies. Nevertheless, Ha'enoshiut Kodemet Lekol Sichsuch, he wrote on Twitter, in announcing the decision about lighting up City Hall, meaning our shared humanity comes before any conflict. What a powerful sentiment. 
And Israel isn't stopping at thoughtful gestures either, reminiscent of when the Jewish state offered aid to Iran in recent years after devastating earthquakes. The Minister of Defense, Benny Gantz, announced that he and the Foreign Minister, Gabi Ashkenazi, were working through third-party channels to try to offer aid to the Lebanese government in a form it would accept, that is, not coming from an enemy state, Israel. My heart goes out to the Lebanese people in the wake of this tragedy, and my soul yearns for a time when the obvious thing to do after a tragedy like this in Beirut would be to airlift victims on the short 30-minute helicopter ride to northern Israel's world-class hospitals. May we live to see that day. Shabbat Shalom to the people of Beirut and to all of you. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.